We're continuing in our study of the Incarnation, various aspects of the Incarnation. We have talked about the sovereignty of God and the Incarnation of His Son. And we've talked about the, uh, the covenants of God and how they were fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And this morning I want to talk about redemption and the incarnation. Our world is filled with needs of all sorts. We can see it in the newspaper. We, we hear it on the radio. We see it in our own lives. Um, war, injustice, violence, sin, everything. Everything. Illness and disease. And we long for an answer to that, and God has given an answer. He's given an answer. What we so often forget, though, uh, perhaps because it means taking responsibility for our part, what we often forget is that all of those other things are just symptoms of the underlying issue, which is sin. Adam sinned and death entered the world, and death spread to all men and women because all in Adam sinned. We inherit that. It's, it's part of our makeup. It's why we sin. We sin for the same reasons birds fly and fish swim. We were born to it. It's part of who we are. What the Lord brought in his son was redemption. And that's what that Sunday was about or that, that birthday was about. So let's pray and then look at their stories. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your word the truth of who Jesus is and what he has come to do. We all come to you with uh, awareness of the, the fallenness and the brokenness of this world. We come to you with our own griefs and our aches and our pains and our losses. We come to you full of the symptoms of the fall. And Lord, we see in your word that you have answered that through your son, Jesus, who took on human flesh, lived a sinless life, died on the cross and there on the cross, satisfied your wrath, shed his blood for the forgiveness of sins, rose from the dead in victory over sin and death, and then grants forgiveness and justification and righteousness on the basis of faith alone, not through anything that we do, but through everything that he has done as we trust in him. And we believe, Lord, that one day Jesus will resolve every symptom. And so help us today as we look at the scripture to be encouraged to look at the, the Son, to look at the, the incarnate Christ. Not simply as someone who came to solve the symptoms, but to pull out the very root of sin itself. Help us in Jesus' name, we ask. Amen. So we, we begin with, with Mary in Luke chapter 1, verse 26. 
It says, then the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And Mary and uh, Gabriel announced to Mary that she would conceive by the power of the Holy Spirit the Son of God. The sign of that is that her cousin Elizabeth, who had been barren with her husband Zechariah, was six months pregnant. Verse 39, Mary arose and she went in a hurry from Nazareth in the north to the hill country to a city of Judah, the hill country of Judah. She entered the house of Zechariah, greeted Elizabeth, and it happened that when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, verse 41 says, John the Baptist, he's not the Baptist yet, John in her womb leaps, she cried out with a loud voice and said, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. <clears throat> Mary responds with a hymn of praise, a psalm of praise that's sometimes called the Magnificat from the first word in the Latin Vulgate. So verses 46 to 48, Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord. And my spirit has rejoiced in God, my Savior, for he has looked upon the humble state of his slave. For behold, from this time on, all generations will count me blessed. Her soul magnifies the Lord. That means that she worships him as great and glorious. She rejoices in God, her Savior. That should end all idea that Mary was conceived without sin. She needed a savior and she was aware of that. She says he has looked upon the humble state of his slave, speaking of herself, her humble state. She's not talking about a lack of education. She's not talking about poverty or low social status. She's talking about the state of her soul as a sinner. We see this in, in her response to the angel, verse 28, coming in, he said to her, Greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was perplexed, troubled at this saying, and wondered what it meant. People in scripture are usually frightened and terrified and disturbed when holy angels visit them because they're holy. She knew her sin as well as you know yours and I know mine. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23 says. The angel calls her favored one, meaning that God has favored her. It's a similar phrase as to what we see in Genesis chapter 6 when it says Noah found favor with, with Yahweh. It doesn't say Yahweh found Noah favorable. Noah was a sinner, but he found favor with God. God showered grace and mercy upon him as he did with Mary. And all generations do recognize that Mary was privileged and blessed because she, being a sinner, had been chosen to give life to the incarnate Son of God. She was not theotokos, as the word is sometimes used, mother of God. She was not the mother of God. She was mother of the incarnate Son of God. Jesus was fully God, but he took humanity upon himself. 
And that's why she considers herself to be enormously blessed, and, and we should too. The Apostle Paul, writing to Timothy, says, I was a blasphemer and a persecutor of the church and an insolent man, proud and rebellious, but I've received mercy. And it's a trustworthy and faithful saying that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. That's Mary would have said it if she would have thought those words. Mary believed. She conceived the child. She went to Elizabeth. Elizabeth was three months pregnant. Mary stayed in Judah for three months, it says in verse 56, and then returned to her home. We're not told that Mary was there until John was born. Verse 56 comes before John is born. But I, I think that the idea that Mary would have gone to see her elderly cousin, if not elderly, then older, Elizabeth, and just as Elizabeth went into labor, Mary said, okay, I'm out of here, see ya. So it's possible that she stayed. We're just not told that. When Mary returned, she had news for Joseph. The news was that she was pregnant. They were betrothed. The betrothal was a legally binding relationship. They were considered husband and wife. They simply had not gone through the second step of the wedding and the consummation of the marriage. But they were legally bound together as husband and wife. In Joseph's mind, what she had done was commit adultery. He being a righteous man, we're in Matthew now, if you want to turn to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1, the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows when his mother Mary, I love that. Matthew just says, Okay, so the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. Luke paints this, this wonderful, warm, artistic picture. And Matthew's giving testimony in a court. But remember, Matthew is the tax collector. He's the accountant. He's keeping the ledger straight. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together as husband and wife, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away quietly, to divorce her quietly, secretly. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the one who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So this is tremendous news. Mary has not been immoral. She has not committed adultery. She has been blessed by God. She was the recipient of the grace and mercy of God and blessed with the privilege of bearing his incarnate son. And Joseph is to do what he is pledged to do. He is to receive her as his wife. She's going to give birth to a boy and they are to call him Jesus. Now, by the way, that's what the angel had said to Mary too. You'll give birth to a son and you'll call his name Jesus. And so Joseph has that as a confirmation. The angel saying, boy, name him Jesus, which is probably what Mary had said. I assume that Mary told him the whole story. We're not told that, but I think it's safe to assume that. And he simply dismissed it. 
You're just making this up. But she wasn't. The English name Jesus comes from the Greek name Jesus, which comes from the Hebrew name Yehoshua, which in English becomes Joshua, coming full circle. And it means Jehovah is salvation. Yahweh is salvation. Not simply Yahweh saves, but Yahweh is salvation. And we believe that. Jesus is our salvation. Jesus saves us. Yes. Jesus took our sins upon him at the cross. Yes. He satisfied the wrath of God. Yes. But Jesus does more than save us. Jesus is our salvation. And that's why the New Testament speaks so frequently of us being in Christ. We have to be joined to him. And we are by the Holy Spirit when we trust. Now at the time that Jesus came... Israel was occupied by the Romans. They had been occupied previously by the Greeks. They had risen up against uh, uh, Antiochus Epiphanes, a Greek general. He sacrificed a pig in the, the, the altar, on the altar there in the temple in Jerusalem, defiling it. And a family called the Maccabees had had enough. Uh, a week or two ago, Hanukkah ended. And Hanukkah is the 12-day the observance called the Festival of Lights. It's the 12-day observance of, of that, or the eight-day, I'm sorry, eight-day observance of, of that event. Prior to that, they had been enslaved in Assyria. The Assyrian Empire was defeated by the Medes, and they were defeated by the Persians. They were permitted to return, but they never again, after 500 BC, they were never independent again. But Jesus wouldn't be saving his people from the Romans or the Egyptians or the Syrians or any other human enemies. That was not why he came. He wouldn't be saving them from political oppression or physical slavery. He wouldn't be saving them from famines or crop failures, or diseases. He was going to save them from their sins. He will save his people from their sins. Moses delivered the, the, the people of, of Israel from, from slavery in Egypt, from being captive in a foreign nation. And they could leave that place and go out in the wilderness and say, those wicked Egyptians, they treated us badly. But when the Son of God came, it was not to save them from the Egyptians. It was to save them from themselves, to save them from sin, to, to pull out that root of sin. People suffer more over guilt from sin than, than anything else. Guilt and shame destroy the soul. People use almost anything to try and numb the pain of that, numb their consciences, and forget the judgment that they know must come. The angel says to Joseph, this, this little child, he's not yet born. He is still safe and contained in, in Mary's womb. Is going to take away the greatest threat there is to human life and restore peace. And Joseph believed that. Turning back to Luke chapter 1, we have the birth of John the Baptist 
Verse 57, the time was fulfilled for Elizabeth to give birth, and she gave birth to a son. They wanted to name him after his father or a family member, and they made signs to Zechariah in verse 62. What do you want to name him? He wrote, he asked for a tablet and wrote his name is John. And they marveled, and his tongue was open, and his tongue loosed, and or his mouth was open, and his tongue was loosed, and he began to speak, blessing God. And this is what he said in verse 67. His father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he visited and accomplished redemption for his people and raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David, his servant. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy toward our fathers, And to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to Abraham, our father, to grant us that we, being rescued from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. When the Lord God of Israel visited and accomplished redemption for his people, he didn't He didn't do that theoretically. He didn't do that by proxy. He didn't do it from a distance. The Lord God came in his son, incarnate, and visited Israel. John says the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father. God literally visited his people. He personally accomplished redemption. Zechariah speaks of all of these these things that were still present for him as already being done. God has shown up. We're free. Jesus has not even been born yet. He's still three months from birth. And Zechariah says, but it's, it's accomplished. It's done. Verse 69, Zechariah says, the Lord God of Israel has raised up a horn of salvation for us. That's a reference to Jesus. In the Old Testament, the the horn was a a symbol of power and authority, the ox's horn. King David says in 2 Samuel 22, Yahweh is my rock and my fortress And my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, the power of my salvation, the authority of my salvation. In Psalm 132, 17, Yahweh himself speaks, in Zion, I will cause the horn of David to spring up. That's Jesus. He's speaking of his son. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. So Zechariah speaks these words thinking of the Messiah, thinking of the anointed one of God. He knows exactly why that son will be born. It will be to bring salvation. Now Zechariah phrases it in terms of Old Testament prophets, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. We have no enemy greater than Satan. And Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil.
He says in verse 72 that Jesus came to show mercy to our fathers and to remember the holy covenant, the oath which he swore to Abraham our father. A week or two ago, I talked about the covenants that were fulfilled by Jesus. And, and two of those covenants, the, the Adamic covenant and the Mosaic covenant, were mutual covenants. God said, you do, and then I will do. The Noahic covenant and the Abrahamic covenant and the Davidic covenant were unilateral covenants. God said, I do all the work. I do all the heavy lifting. You just trust. That's the Abrahamic covenant. When God made the promise to Abraham, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him, reckoned to him as righteousness. He was justified by that faith. Not faith that there would be a savior now. Not faith that Jesus would come, that he would be God in human flesh, that he would live a sinless life, he would die on a cross. None of that, Abraham had no idea. He simply believed God. And God said, that's righteousness to me. That's righteousness. Not the works, not the good deeds, that faith in me, that confidence in me is righteousness to me. And then God had animal, uh, Abraham take clean animals and he killed them and he divided them in two and he separated them so that there was a corridor between them. And it was an ancient form of, of making a binding covenant so that the, the, the two making the covenant walk together through those dead animals and they're now joined by that life. That, that is one life that connects them. But when Abraham had killed the animals and separated them, God caused a deep sleep to fall on him and God alone passed through. What's that mean? That says God didn't make a, a mutual agreement with Abraham. If you'll do these things, I'll keep my promise. God said, I promise I will do these things. Your job is just to trust me. Your job is just to trust me. The Abrahamic covenant becomes the basis of the new covenant, and we see it fulfilled in the book of Galatians and the book of Romans. That's what Jesus came to do. So that's what Zechariah is thinking. God has remembered his covenant with Abraham. And look at the purpose of that covenant, verses 74 and 75, to grant us that we, being rescued from the hand of our enemies, might serve him or worship him without fear. Oh, you couldn't come before God without fear and worship. And by the way, we think of worship as coming and we stand and we read the Bible and we sing and we do all of these things. Worship is basically just equivalent to prayer. And we just don't think anything about it, do we? We just send up prayers all the time. And we believe that we're heard and we believe that our God loves us and that he receives those prayers. In the time of Moses, somebody who had sin on their heart, somebody who had that stain of guilt, couldn't just lift up a prayer. It wouldn't be heard. They had to take an offering so that they could pray. And God says, it's all done now. Now you can serve me, you can worship without fear in holiness and righteousness, which we never had before. All of this was still wrapped up in that unborn child. But Zechariah believed it. Moving down into chapter 2, Jesus is born in Bethlehem. And I know that's a precious story, but we're not going to read it this morning. I want to move to verse 8 with the shepherds. Jesus has been born 
Verse 8 says, in the same region, there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. <clears throat> and an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for the, all the people. For today in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord, and this will be the sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. We don't know what time of day Jesus was born. We don't know if he was born right as the shepherds or the angels came to the shepherds or if he had been born in the morning. But we know that it's nighttime when the, the angel of the Lord comes to the shepherds. We know that they're keeping watch over their flock by night. So we know it's not the, the depth of winter. It was too cold in winter time to, to do that. They would pasture the flocks during the day and take them back to the pens, during, or pens at night for safety. So they're, they're out probably by a fire, quietly talking, keeping an eye on the sheep. The sheep are daytime animals. They're resting. They're asleep. They're just making sure no predators sneak in. They're making sure no thieves sneak in and grab a, a sheep or two. And then they're surrounded by this tremendous of light, the glory of God, which terrifies them. They're comforted. And they're the first ones to hear the gospel. Good news, euangelion, gospel. It's what we translate gospel. It means good news, a good message, a good report. And it's good news for all the people, Jew and Gentile, slave and free, male and female, rich and poor. It is good news that should cause everybody who hears it to dance. Good news of great joy. A savior has been born. There's a savior who is Christ, Messiah, anointed one, the Lord, Yahweh. Jesus is Christ, the anointed one of God, the one whom God sent to be savior, God himself in human flesh. This, it's really an interesting pairing of words. Luke is the only one who puts Christ and Lord together in exactly this way, and it only happens here. Most translations read Christ the Lord. Some read uh, Christ who is the Lord. It's hard to understand exactly what he meant. Perhaps he meant he is Christ and Lord. He is the Savior, the Deliverer, the Redeemer, and God. The, angels, the, the, or the angel gave the shepherds a sign to confirm his words. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Now, this really isn't much of a sign. Babies were born. That wasn't unusual. Wrapped in cloths is a single word in the, in, in the Greek. It means swaddled. 
It's, it just applies to newborns. So we know that Jesus is, is newborn. The word baby could be anywhere from birth up to being a toddler. But you don't swaddle a three-month-old. This is a newborn. And he's lying in a manger. And we, we would look at that and think, wow, that's really weird. But it's really not. Ancient homes generally had a, 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 a walled area surrounding a courtyard. The home stood, stood at the back. And the front part of the house was, was just open to the courtyard. You moved from the open air, open to the sky, under a shelter that was still open out to this side, like a patio. And that's where the animals stayed. Most people with animals didn't have hundreds of sheep. They had one or two. They had them for the use of the family. They would keep the, the, the lambs there that they were going to take for Passover and, and kill in Jerusalem. The animals that they used for food or that they used for wool. They just kept them in that open courtyard. Well, we know that the animals aren't there because they're out in the fields. And so there are no animals there. We know that there was no room for the inn. There was no room inside, but there was room outside. That's where Mary gave birth. Plenty of fresh air, not freezing weather. The manger is kind of an odd thing to us. It would have been a stone or wooden trough. But, you know, if... if Somebody came in here with a newborn baby and the baby was asleep and they didn't have a, a carrier. They would just lay the baby on the seat next to them, wouldn't they? They wouldn't put it on the floor. And so without any animals there, a, a, a manger filled with fresh straw is clean and warm and out of the wind and safe. So you'll find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. None of that is miraculous in some way. None of that's odd or, or unusual, but it was sufficient. The, these men went off to see the baby. They told Mary and Joseph what the angel had said. Everybody was in awe. And then in verse 20, it says, The angels went back, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen, just as was told them. The angels' words were true. They found the baby just as they had been told, and they believed. They believed. And finally, we come to Simeon. Looking down a little bit more, we see that the eight days were fulfilled. Jesus was circumcised, taken to the temple, named, formally named and registered. Verse 22 says, when the days for their cleansing according to the law of Moses were fulfilled, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord as it is written in the law of the Lord. Every firstborn male that opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what was said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. That's how we know that they were poor. They were bringing the, the least expensive offering required. Verse 29 says, behold, or verse 25, I'm sorry. Behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the comfort of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the spirit into the temple. 
And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to carry out for him the custom of the law, then he took him into his arms and blessed God and said, Now, Master, you are releasing your slave in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for the glory of your people Israel. It appears that Simeon is, is an old man. He speaks of his death in verse 29 of being released. Now I can die. You'd promised I wouldn't die until I saw your Messiah, your Christ, and now I've seen him, and, and now I can die. And uh, per perhaps he's like a lot of older people saying, okay, I'm ready, whenever. And he sees the fulfillment of God's promises. This is the seed of the woman who will crush the serpent's head. This little eight-day-old swaddled infant. This is the seed of Abraham who will bless the nations of the world. This is the substitute as God had provided a, a lamb for Isaac. This is the seed of Judah whom Jacob calls Shiloh, peace, to whom the people are to be obedient. This is the son of David. This little infant is the righteous king of Israel. And Zechariah, uh, I'm sorry, Simeon might have been thinking about Zechariah. He might not, but Zechariah 9.9 talks about Jesus coming to Jerusalem, humble and mounted on a donkey, righteous and endowed with salvation. In about three decades, Jesus would enter the city on the first day of the week of Passion Week and be acclaimed as the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Every promise of God was swaddled there. As though those promises had leapt off of the pages of scripture. And Simeon got an experience that few got. He got to look into the eyes of the promises of God. This child is the comfort of Israel. This child is the salvation of Jews and Gentiles alike. This child is the glory of Israel, the hope of all people, the source of life and peace. And Simeon believed. As we bring this home, we need the reminder that Jesus came into a world that really was no different from ours. Technology differs, but that's all. People are the same. The world into which he came was a world that was filled with oppression and with violence and with injustice. The powerful hated and abused the weak and the weak uh, hated and sometimes retaliated violently against the powerful. It was a world that was filled with immorality. That was certainly true in the Gentile nations. They were notoriously wicked in, in all sorts of ways. Even Jewish society, though, was tainted with immorality and sin. The vast majority of uh, tax collectors and, and drunkards and prostitutes that hung around Jesus were Jews, not Gentiles. And it was a world that was filled with pain and suffering. Infant mortality was very high. 
babies that survived childhood uh, or babies that were born alive were often born with infections that led to blindness and other disabilities. Uh, infections from relatively minor accidents or injuries could leave somebody crippled or dead. Leprosy was common in, in most of the known world from China all the way into Africa. And during his earthly ministry, Jesus addressed many of the problems in Israel. He healed the sick. He, he healed a man born blind. He healed those who had been crippled. He healed lepers, those who'd been withered by various conditions. He called sinners to repentance. He taught his disciples that his church would not operate on the, on the power structures and, uh, of the world. It's not going to be based on hierarchies. And, and dominance. But all of those problems, as I said at the beginning, are just the symptoms of the root. And the root is sin. Jesus didn't come to give us Tylenol and to just deal with the symptoms. He came to deal with the root. Oppression and injustice and violence are symptoms. Immorality and wickedness are symptoms. Pain and suffering are just symptoms. He is going to deal with those. Now that he's dealt with the root, the time is coming when Jesus returns personally to reign in Jerusalem over all the world. And we're told in, in the scriptures that the nations will go to Jerusalem and worship. He will put an end to the, the, the corruption and the violence and the oppression that is just inherent to the human condition, power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. It doesn't matter who's got the power. He's going to deal with immorality and wickedness. He's going to deal with pain and suffering and disability and grief. Tears will be wiped away. There will be no more pain, no more death, no more suffering. The former things will be gone Revelation says, gone. It'll be gone. But it began not with treating the symptoms, but with pulling the root, dealing with the root of our problem, which is sin. And that's why Mary rejoiced in God, her Savior. She knew that she was a sinner. She's called righteous. Joseph is called righteous and, and godly. But that's righteous from a human point of view. That's not righteous in the eyes of God and not needing a savior. God looked upon her humble, sinful state with loving kindness and mercy. She believed. That's why Joseph was given the promise that Jesus would save his people from their sins, not from oppression, not from disease, not from poverty, but from themselves. That's why Zechariah, the priest who... Think about it, had so many times felt the blood of the sacrifice on his hands. Somebody brings him a lamb. Another priest holds the bull. Zachariah reaches under, pulls up the neck and slits the throat. And then he takes that bowl of blood and he pours it out and they get, they get covered. And he believes that God is going to put an end to sacrifice. so that people can worship him in holiness and righteousness and without fear. That's why the shepherds 
had the good news, the gospel of great joy preached to them, the news that their Savior and the Savior of all sinners had been born. That's why faithful old Simeon rejoiced in the salvation of God, the Savior who would bring light to the Gentiles and glory to Israel. We know that the man, Christ Jesus, died on the cross for the sins of his people. He rose in victory over sin and death, never to die again, and to open the gates of paradise and grant eternal life to all who believe in him. And we just struggle with that. We just wrestle with that. Every one of us at some level, uh, no matter how long you've been a Christian, at, at some level you, you wrestle with, there's nothing for me to do. I don't do enough. I'm not good enough. I'm not holy enough. I'm not devoted enough. And we, we try and we fail and we try and we fail and we try and we fail. But Jesus has done. Biblical Christianity is not go and do. Biblical Christianity is Jesus has done. Trust in him. And let the Spirit of God sanctify you according to his word. That doesn't mean that God justifies sin. Not at all. It does mean that the answer to our sin is never in what we can do. It's only in what Jesus has done. And he did it once for all time and perfectly well. The scriptures say that Jesus came to give his life as a ransom for sinners. He said that actually. Jesus said also in John 10 that he came to lay down his life for his sheep. Paul writes that Jesus was delivered over to death for our forgiveness and raised from the dead for our justification or on account of our justification. The sense of that is Jesus had to die because of our sins. And if, it, if God had not accepted his death for our sins, he would not have been raised from the dead. Jesus, Galatians 1.4 says, came to rescue us from this present evil age. If you want to know what's wrong with the world, look in a mirror. He came to save us from us. Paul writes to Titus, he came to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works, the good works that follow possession, good works that follow redemption, that follow being born again. Father in heaven, we give you thanks that Jesus came. We give you thanks that we have a savior All of us to one degree or another are guilty of thinking that there's something to do. That I must answer for my sins in some way. But the truth is the good old hymn says is that Jesus paid it all. Sin had left a crimson stain but he washed it white as snow 
And I ask for each one here that you would cement this truth into our hearts, perhaps as never before. That we would understand that Jesus has completely satisfied your wrath. Jesus has completely satisfied the righteous requirements of your law. When we put our faith in him, we are joined with him in his death, and the law of righteousness no longer has authority over us. So that we are justified by grace through our faith in Jesus Christ, and not by our works, never by our works. And we are forgiven and we are justified and born again. in order to become a people who are zealous for good works. That's true. But we're never saved by our works. We're saved by the gracious mercy of the Son of God who loved us and delivered up his life for us so that the life that we live is lived by faith in him. We thank you for this. In Jesus' precious name.